0: Let's just take a moment to review where we're at in the life of Christ. You remember for the last six months, Jesus and his disciples are heading toward Jerusalem, their final destination. Jesus knows what's going to happen there, but the disciples are still really kind of foggy about the future. And as they arrive in the city, a large crowd has been going with them from Jericho, and they've been laying down their cloaks and the palm leaves. Uh, to uh, prepare the way, and they're recognizing him as the son of David, the king of Israel. But the crowd inside the city of Jerusalem is of a little different sort. They're welcoming, uh, they're kind of for him, but they really haven't made up their minds as to the identity of this prophet. Furthermore, the religious leaders who are centered in Jerusalem have been his major opposition all this time. And this intensifies as Jesus returns to the city the next day. He disrupts the activities of the traders and the money changers in the temple who've really turned uh, the Lord's uh, house of worship into a, a den of thieves is what he calls it here. And then he's challenged on the next day by this group of chief priests and scribes and elders about his authority to do these things. And as the back and forth goes along, he uh, tells them that parable about the wicked vine dressers, and they perceive he's talking about them. And then he informs them that the stone that they are rejecting is going to become the chief cornerstone of what we know as the church today. These leaders then attempted to lay hands on him, but. They feared the crowd, and uh, so instead they tried to trap him with their questions, with their words, to turn him, them, uh, them against the Lord Jesus and uh, eventually take him and have their will with him accomplished. Now, uh, in verse 28, we conclude these questions that are being asked to the Lord Jesus And this time it's not a group that's coming with their uh, supposed answer to trip him up or a question to trip him up. But uh, a person who seems to be uh, sincere, he's just a lone scribe. And this is the only time in Mark's gospel we see an open-minded person coming to the Lord Jesus, an expert in the law, and asking this question. It's the only time Jesus actually commends one as well. So it's a very significant moment in the, the narrative. And the question this posed here is really the theme of our sermon. What is the first or greatest commandment? If you're familiar with the Bible today, how would you answer that question? Certainly no better or wiser than the Lord Jesus did. So let's ask God's blessing on his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we're thankful today, once again, we have your word preserved for us. We're thankful we can go to it and uh, see what your will is for us and, Lord, how we ought to be living for you. And we pray, Lord, today as we look into what Jesus says is the greatest command, that you would help us as your people to obey it. And Lord, if somebody here is not sure of their relationship to you, may they see that uh, God loved us first to make it possible for us to love him. We ask your blessing, Lord, as we continue this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> All right, the first thing we want to look at here is verse 28, and this sincere question by an open-minded scribe. And Mark's giving a positive uh, spin on this situation. Matthew, not so much. But he says that one of the scribes came. Now, if we compare this to Matthew's account, we, uh, he informs us that when Jesus stumped the Sadducees with their question, the Pharisees come together, and they're discussing something. We don't know exactly what. But one of them comes to Jesus with this particular question. Now, you remember that the scribes were experts in the law, and they were largely hostile toward Jesus. Some of them were Pharisees, And Matthew identifies this man as a Pharisee as well as a scribe coming to Jesus. And his question was to test him. Now, that can be taken positively or negatively, but as you look at the whole story here, I think that testing was actually genuine and sincere, and the response that Jesus gives later to this man supports that thought. Now, let's look at the reason here, the underlying question that is being asked. This scribe has been listening to what's been going on, having heard them reasoning together. Okay, so maybe all these questions have been asked Jesus. He's heard his uh, response to them. He's kind of weighing these things in his mind, and uh, his perception is that Jesus has answered these things well. Now, that word well means Uh, in a wholesome fashion, in a satisfying way. And as a lawyer, a man who knew the law upside down and backwards, he perceived these were good answers, and he probably hoped he would get the same type of response from the question that he asked the Lord Jesus. Now, when it comes to the law, the scribes counted... 613 commandments in the Pentateuch. Aren't you glad the Lord just reduced it to 10? But here we have 613. Now, they don't just, you know, ignore them. These guys, they sit around, they discuss it day and night, and they divide it into classifications of heavy and light according to what they think was the most important. They also attempted to select principles that would kind of reduce the law to its simplest form, like Jesus is really doing here. And one such example, let me give this to you, was addressed to Rabbi Hillel, who lived in the first century. And a Gentile came up to him and challenged him. He said, make me a proselyte on condition that you teach me the whole law while I stand on one foot. Now, I don't know how you try, if you've tried to stand on one foot lately, you can do it for a while, but you can't do it for a long while. So he's probably thinking, you know, how are you going to reduce the law or make me a proselyte to Judaism before I have to use two feet to stand up? Well, this was Hillel's reply. What you hate for yourself, do not do to your neighbor. This is the whole law, the rest is commentary, go and learn. So he did a pretty good job there, especially that this is also similar to what Jesus has to say. So Jesus then is asked to reduce the law to its most important component, the idea behind being the first commandment of all. So let's take a look here at Jesus' take on the great commandment. And it's really twofold in nature. The first thing he says here in verse 29 is the basis of the commandment. The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now that's taken from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. And the first word there, the word hear, is in the Hebrew, shema. So this was the Jewish confession of faith in the Old Testament, the Shema. And that simply means you better listen to this. It's very important. Pay strict attention to it. Now, a devout Jew would repeat that passage through verse 9, as well as parallel passages in chapter 11 and also in Numbers 15, every morning and every evening. Now that wouldn't be all that bad an idea today, would it? To uh, say, "Here, O Christian, the Lord our God, the Lord is one," and then repeat the rest of these two commandments. Well, what's the significance of Jesus beginning with that thought, with that idea, to introduce the greatest command? Well, it was a reminder to his listeners and a confession of who it is they're supposed to love. It is the Lord, all capital letters, that means Yahweh, the one who made covenant with Israel in loving kindness, and he's the self-existing one who becomes in grace everything that his people need for their salvation and their sustenance both materially and spiritually. He alone is one God, the only God, the unique God, and he says, it's our God. And even though in Christ's day, polytheism was uh, worldwide, and Mark's readers, uh, largely from Rome, would have converted out of those religions to trust in the Lord, the one God who saved them through his son Jesus. So they become monotheistic. One commentator put it like this, everything we do radiates from this theological core. Life and theology begin at the same place from a love relationship with a living God to whom we submit as to the one and only Lord. So that's a good starting point Jesus reminds them of. The basis for this command is grounded in the person of God who showed his love by entering covenant with his people. And that love in the story of Mark is going to be manifested in just a couple of days as Jesus goes to the cross. All right. Jesus then gives us the first component of the greatest command, And that's in verse 30, love God completely, and you shall love the Lord your God. All right, so this makes sense, doesn't it? What you choose to worship, you love, and you actually become like. The real God, the creator God, the God who saves us, deserves to be worshipped and loved by his people. And you're familiar with the term love here in the Bible. It's agapao. That is elevated in God's word to the highest form of love because it comes from God and it describes his type of love, which is selfless, the kind of love that he expressed when he sent his son into the world to die in our place, the same kind of love that caused the Lord Jesus to go to the cross of Calvary, voluntarily lay down his life, Uh, for our salvation. And if you know God, you, uh, excuse me, if you don't know God, you cannot express this level of love in your life. If you do know him, this is the kind of love that he deserves and that you can express to him and others. So our love for God is to be full, to be whole, and to be complete. As Jesus uses the different expressions Um, drawn from that text back in Deuteronomy. He does add one component, not found there, but it is in the Septuagint, and that is the mind. So this covers all the scriptural aspects of uh, man that are to be turned to the Lord in adoration. He says we're to love God with all our heart and with all our soul, And we don't always distinguish between those two things. Uh, They stand uh, for your innermost being, who you are on the inside. They convey the center of your uh, intellect, your, your thought processes, your emotions, and your will. And we're to love the Lord from the very core of our being and our existence. By mentioning the mind, Jesus kind of expands the intelligent side of worship we think about the way we should love the Lord when we come into a worship service for instance our mind doesn't wander about thinking of things we're going to do later or through the coming week we focus on what we're doing We sing praises to God. We think about the words that we're bringing before God. And we hear the word of God preached. We are attentive to it. And so our intellectual powers are being involved. We're thinking about these things. And then he mentions strength, which alludes to our activities through our body. The whole man loves God, not just your uh, mind and not just your feelings, but in your activities of life. Actions reflect your attitudes. One commentator said, heart represents the control center of human personality, soul, the self-conscious thought life, mind, the thought capacity, and strength, all of one's bodily powers. So our love for God should control our decisions, our desires, our thoughts, and our actions. Now, we could say a whole lot more about that, but let's go on to the second component. And that is, love your neighbor as yourself in verse 31. Jesus was asked about the greatest command, the the most important command, the first command. But he adds this to it because it actually flows from the first command. And he's, again, taking this from the Old Testament, Leviticus 19, verse 18. Now, what did Jesus mean when he says, love your neighbor as yourself? Uh, If you lived out here in the country, neighbors are hard to come by. So does he mean somebody who lives across the street, somebody next to you? We know that that's not the case. Uh, In the Old Testament, a Jew was required to love his fellow Jew, a full proselyte to their religion, and the foreigner who lived in the land. By the time Jesus came on the scene, they threw out the last one. They all hated Romans and Gentiles and things of that nature, especially those in Jerusalem and Judea. They thought uh, the Gentiles were just kind of, you know, Stay away from them, too, because they're up there by the, or excuse me, the Galileans, they kind of stayed away from because they were mixed with Gentiles all over the place. So we, we stay away from them as well. But we know that Jesus expanded that, especially when you think about the parable of the Good Samaritan. Okay, so neighbor, the word itself literally means one nearby, a generic term for anyone. So not just your family, not just your friends, not just your neighbor across the road, or people who think like you do. Everybody we come into contact with is our neighbor, and we're to love them. So these seven little words tell us how we are to treat our neighbor. We are to love them as we love ourselves. We're to treat them as we treat ourselves. Now, when the Lord speaks about this self-love, this is not the love advocated by modern-day psychotherapy and counseling. It's not about self-esteem, be it high or be it low. Either way, the focus is on yourself. Whether you love to love yourself or you love to hate yourself, you're still talking about yourself or thinking about yourself. This uh, idea of self is used as an example because no matter what problems you might be having in your head, you usually take care of yourself. And so this kind of love Jesus is talking about goes out beyond yourself to other people. We take care of ourselves, don't we? <clears throat> when you get up in the morning and you go look at your face in the mirror, did you leave yourself that way all day long? Well, maybe if you're not going out anywhere, so who cares what I look like today? But you know, you usually wash your face, you clean yourself up, comb your hair, brush your teeth, all that good stuff. And you're taking care of yourself. You don't even think about it. And then we feed ourselves. We take care of all of our needs. We avoid pain and unpleasantness as much as we possibly can. The way we treat ourselves is the way God wants us to treat everybody else. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Uh, it's interesting that in the New Testament there are more references to loving others than even to loving God. So this is very important to the Lord, and one of the ways you show you love God is you show is you love others. And perhaps uh, we take it for granted that we should love God, who's done so much for us, and after all, we can't even see Him. Now, sometimes we act like he's not around, but when it comes to loving people, there's the rub because they're not like God at all. They, including we, often act badly. We are at times mean and hurtful, crabby, grumpy, aloof, unkind, selfish. The list goes on, and uh, I took all those from my own life. Ask my wife. Well, have I stepped on any other toes yet? Yet we still love ourselves when we act badly in these ways. So we have good reason to love others with all their flaws and their foibles. And only the Lord can really help us to do that as we obey his word and look to the strength of his spirit to help us. So Jesus concludes all this by saying there's no greater law or commandment than these. Now, why is this? Well, when you think about it, these two commands reduce the ten commands of the Old Testament, right? First four commandments regulate our attitude toward the Lord, test our love for him. The last six commandments, how we treat others. We obey our parents. We don't steal. We don't kill. We don't lie. We don't commit sexual sin. We don't covet. Why? Because we love others as we love ourselves. So all the commandments in the Bible, whether they're 613 or 6,013, you can boil them all down to the concept of love. It relates to either loving God or loving your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus correctly reduced it to this Principle here. This is the whole law. Now, let's see how the scribe responds to this because he's an expert in the law. And we see that his response is positive. He's been open minded and he's been eager to hear what Jesus says about this. So, first of all, we see his wholehearted agreement with what Jesus said in verse 32. The scribe said to him, Well, well said, teacher. Again, that same word. This is a good answer. This is a, a correct answer. You've spoken the truth. Well, the truth was taken from God's word, so it had to be right. It had to be true. And uh, he, he goes on to say, You've spoken the truth, for there's one God, and there is no other but he. Now, he adds a little bit there to expand on what Jesus said about the Shema. He's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 4, a little bit earlier, and he's he's stating here that uh, God is is one. He's uh, uh, only one God, and uh, that passage was... uh, Reducing what the Lord was teaching the people as He delivered them out of the hands of the Egyptians. And Moses is reminding the people of this. And He said to them that through the actions of God delivering them, to you it was shown that you might know that the Lord Himself is God. There is none other besides Him. Of course, Ancient history is all polytheistic. So he's kind of just adding a little bit and making it even more clear in his own mind that there's no other God, this is the only God there is, and therefore he should be loved and worshipped. He then reiterates what Jesus has already said in verse 33, and to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, with all the strength, and a loved one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, what's unusual here about what he has to say? Being a Pharisee and a scribe, he says, This is greater than. This is more than. And, and uh, the term there, more than, means much more. This is much more than even all the burnt sacrifices and offerings. Now, the Pharisees would have not been happy with that statement because they were all about the offerings and the sacrifices and they uh, wanted to appear proper in bringing forth these sacrifices and doing it in the right way and being involved in it because of their outward displays of self-righteousness. They wanted everybody to see we're keeping the commandments and uh, you need to follow us and pay attention to us and not this fellow Jesus. But this scribe, this Pharisee, understood that sacrifices have no meaning and are hypocritical if they are not generated by love for God. It's the inner attitude of your heart and your soul that's of greatest importance. And Jesus had alluded to this previously as he's talking to uh, different ones back in Mark chapter 7. Flip back there just for a second and let me read these to you. Now this is again an answer to questions by the Pharisees and the scribes and uh, seven five, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? How dare you not wash your hands before dinner? Now of course we all make our kids do that, don't we? It's just kind of a health thing. But to them it was it was like, um, you're not really doing the right thing. You're not really worshiping God. So Jesus answers them in verse six, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. So, this was the, the problem of these, uh, these rulers, these Pharisees. The worship of God had devolved from the heart to just the lips, the outward appearance of devotion. And there's also something else to think about here as you think about um, all of these questions that came to Jesus and the attitude of the Pharisees toward him. Is it not ironic that this scribe agrees with Jesus while the vast majority of the party is actually violating the command in regard to Jesus? They've been plotting his demise. They've already tried to take him as he was in the city, but they were afraid of the crowd's reaction. And now we know in a couple of days they will arrest him, they'll deliver him to the Romans, and they will support his execution. So how is that, loving your neighbor as yourself, and then, of course, loving God, who says you should love your neighbor as yourself. So a proof of your love for God is your love for others, and they were violating that very important principle. Now, Jesus then responds to the scribe in verse 34, and again in a positive way. <clears throat> now what Jesus saw, that, he answered wisely. So Jesus pays attention to everything that's going on. He pays attention to what this guy has to say. He knows the motives of others uh, who have questioned him previous to this. He knows their thoughts, their attitudes, their determinations, And this is the only time he responds to his questioners in a positive way because he knows the sincerity of the heart. And, of course, he knows our true motives and our thoughts today as well. He knows if our attitude and actions match up with each other. Now, his assessment is you are not far from the kingdom of God. Now, that's both an acknowledgement and an invitation. This man has asked a legitimate question, not from hostility, but a quest for knowledge. He's on the right track as he agreed with the truth that Jesus presented. But being near the kingdom is not the same as being in the kingdom. And it seems that the next logical step would be, well, you need to become a follower of Christ, even if it goes against the majority view of the scribes. And maybe someday we'll find out what happened. So with this response, that ends the rest of any kind of questioning. After that, nobody dared question him. Well, as we close today, let's draw some more applications from what Jesus instructed. First of all, how much do you really love the Lord? Do you love him fully and completely and wholeheartedly? Do you love him more than your parents and your husband or your wife or your children? Those are all the closest relationships in this life, but they really should pale in comparison to our devotion to the Lord. Do you love him more than the world and the things of the world? As uh, John the Apostle says, we should not be loving those kind of things. If we love the world, the love of the Father is not in us. Do you love him more than your job or your profession or anything that takes up your time and your energy? And how do you show your love for God? Well, just a few examples. We love God by worshiping and serving him privately, but also through joining with a local body of believers that teaches the word of God in truth and obeys that word. We love God by communing with him in his word and prayer. We love God by considering his will and the decisions of life, seeking him in times of trouble and distress, and telling others about his love for them. We love God by developing Christ-like behavior, standing for truth and righteousness in a depraved world and obeying his commands. That's just a few things. But then what about that love for others? Well, we can help folks who are in need physically, pray for them, support them in whatever way we can. We can extend forgiveness to those who mistreat us. We can refuse to hold a grudge. We can live in peace as much as it possibly is uh, for us to do. Is there somebody in your life that you need to go to that you need to forgive or seek forgiveness from that is involved in this commandment. Are you building uh, or excuse me are you holding a, a grudge? Are you being unkind? Are you treating others as they would uh, as you would want them to treat you? These are just a few ways that we show Christ's love to our our neighbor. Now, if you're like me, you fall short every day of being fully one who loves God and neighbor as self. And you realize you can't do this on your own. You need God to help you to do it. You need to seek his grace. You need to uh, uh, seek his help through the spirit that indwells us so we can obey. And may that be our our quest each day. And one last thing. How close are you today to the kingdom of God? Hopefully you're in it. But if you're not, well, the journey begins with God's love for you. We love him because he first loved us. His love was demonstrated in the gift of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who went to the cross to pay the penalty for your sins and mine. And John, who is the apostle of love, sums it up in 1 John 4, 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's what you need to believe, not to be near the kingdom of God, but to be in the kingdom of God. And Lord Jesus invites you to trust him as your savior today. Well, there's a lot of food for thought in these verses So let's ask the Lord to help us apply them this morning. Heavenly Father, again, we are thankful that from eternity past, you loved us and you provided the way for us to be saved and to know you personally. And Lord, as a result of that, we pray that each person here would have an active knowledge of receiving Christ as their Savior. And Lord, uh, Give us the strength we need each day to love you, to put you first. And because uh, we love you and we've experienced that love, that we can share it with others. We can bestow it upon others. So, Lord, help us uh, to confess our failure. We know, Lord, that often we fall short of loving you the way that we should and loving others like we love ourselves. So help us, Lord, just have a tender heart. To realize this truth and call upon your strength each day to help us to live out the greatest commandment. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. All right, as we close out today, let's uh, turn to hymn number 61 and just tell the Lord that we love him. Number 61. Again, if you're not sure of your relationship to the Lord, uh, don't uh, be bashful of coming to me or someone you know in our congregation, and we'll just sit down with you and explain to you a little bit more of what Jesus did to save you. Let's stand together number 61, My Jesus, I Love Thee. he comes or